Vincent the Dude. I am so ready. It is a beautiful spring day here in Chattanooga. The Olympus Mons of Frank Alley, my friend. Yes, How are it, you? It's another wonderful soul here in the scenic <laughs> city right on planet Earth. I love it. My <laughs> eyes, though, they feel like they've been maced by, by Mother Nature. So I'm glad we're going to Mars because I have to imagine that on Mars, where NASA's on the show today, we're going to be yeah. talking about Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter, as well as their new supersonic jet, the X-59. It's going to be exciting. But the great thing about Mars, right, the big yeah. selling point to me is there's, there's probably no pollen up there. Yeah, that is a big selling point. But you know what? I bet there's no Java either. Yeah. Probably not much coffee. You know, I was reading about this. Thank you for segueing <laughs> me here. I was reading a little bit Got about it. Starbucks today. Now, I know Kevin Hill likes to look at the TSA check-ins on airlines, but I think this stat may be even more important, and it's check-ins at Starbucks. And did you know that foot traffic there is back to pre-pandemic levels? Wow. Yeah. Nice. Well, the go, tra- I, sort of. It's down 10% from pre-pandemic levels. Oh, but the okay. average order has increased 21%. But it's up massively from where we were a year ago, people feeling more comfortable. Every day you hear about someone else getting another vaccine shot. Yeah, yeah, you certainly do. Absolutely. My wife just got her second one. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, so Good family's uh, fully uh, vaccinated and ready to go, my friend. Yeah, well, a lot of the team here at Freightways is, too. Yeah. We're getting ready for F3, which is happening November 8th to 10th right oh, here. That's that. right. Live events live. They live here November 8th to 10th right here in the scenic city that we call Freight Alley. Go to live.freightwaves.com slash WTT. You'll save yourself $200 on a ticket. Go do it. Right after the show. Yeah, you better or do it right if after. you're watching this on demand, pause the show, go and do it, and then come yeah, back. Yeah, that's even better. That's right. Some people ask me, they still ask me this day, is this show on demand? So maybe we should say this at the beginning. Of course it's on demand. All of Freightways content is on demand. You can hear this on audio where it's a top 50 rated all-time business news podcast on Apple Podcasts. Go us and what the truck team. Look it up. Look up What the Truck wherever you get podcasts. Or you can look up Freightcast. You get every single Freightways podcast all on one feed. Or you can download the Freightways TV app, right? You can watch you can. all of this stuff. And uh, you can watch it both live, and then you can watch that stuff on demand. Or you can go to our YouTube channel. You can go to our LinkedIn. You can go to our Facebook. There's so many different ways that you could experience a show like What the Truck or everything else we do around here. Absolutely. I've got the Freightwave channel on my Android TV. Oh, I dig it. Yeah. It's beautiful. I put it in the background yeah. a lot. I love it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Part of the reason we're able to do this stuff is because of great sponsors like Redwood. This episode is brought to you by Redwood, a leading logistics platform company has provided solutions for moving and managing freight for more than 20 years. The company's diverse portfolio includes digital freight brokerage, flexible freight management, and innovative platform services such as El Pass and Redwood Connect that fill the gaps between logistics and technology. Contact Redwood at Tell em, Dude. Ooh, go to redwoodlogistics.com right after you get your tickets for F3. Headlines. Headlines. The wand's not working. The wand's not working. <laughs> Are you okay today? How do I release my inner wizard? How do you? You already know that. Uh, our guest told you that. Yes, he did. Yeah. Okay. So headline one, Arrive Logistics takes on $300 million in investments led by ATL Partners. Pretty exciting. John Paul Hampstead reports on Wednesday morning, Austin, Texas-based freight brokerage Arrive Logistics announced that ATL Partners, a New York-based private equity firm focused on aerospace transportation and logistics, led a funding round of more than that $300 million 
to become Arrive's largest minority owner, Michael Vincent. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And Arrive's valuation was not publicly uh, disclosed. The investment is a mix of primary and secondary equity with a large majority of the secondary providing liquidity liquidity for uh, early investors. Matt Pyatt, Arrive's chief executive officer, great guy, by the way, yeah. said the company took in gross revenues of $800 billion in 2020, is on track to do $1.2 billion in 2021. Wow. Mo Money nice. solve problems. Here's what they plan to do on it. First on the list of priorities for Arrive's new cash infusion is dramatically increasing the 3PL's technology investments. And they've already been investing pretty heavily in this space. Historically, Arrive spent about $5 million annually on technology, first customizing an off-the-shelf TMS and then building its own. Tech spend will grow to $20 million this year and run at $30 million annually for the next five years before they make decisions on, on how they want to escalate that. So we talk about tech all the time, right? Yeah. If you are a competitor of Arrive or you're an old-school brokerage, this is what your competition is doing, and they're becoming unicorns doing it. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, and they're absolutely killing it, man. Yeah. They're absolutely killing it. Their office is right down here, just sure a block do. away from here. Sure do. We'll see them at F3. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Here's another story. More money going into tech. More money going into tech. Plus One Robotics raises $33 million for human robot collaboration software. Now, we've talked about a lot of tech guests in the past year, two, three years of doing this show, and a yeah. lot of times they talk about in the marketing copy, you always hear how great machine learning is. But whenever we talk to these robotics people, they're like, yeah, it takes a lot of people and programming. and Yeah, it's telling the computer to do the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? Well, Plus One Robotics is kind of based around them, that there will be a need for a human to singe that gap. And Gray Sharkey reports that Plus One Robotics, they're a human robot collaboration software company headquartered in San Antonio. They've announced this week that $33 million in Series B funding led by MicRock Capital and TransLink Capital, plus one's 3D and AI-powered software helps simplify many of the material handling challenges found at e-commerce fulfillment centers, according to their release. With the help of Plus One Software, warehouses can maneuver millions of SKUs without without sorting and depalletizing the process. With the company's software, a human can operate up to 50 robots remotely at a time. Wow, talk about scaling your workforce. Yeah, no kidding. One person becomes 50 robots. The software leverages Yonder, a supervisory software that uses human intelligence to handle exceptions that commonly arise when handling products with e-commerce fulfillment centers. This type of deep learning software allows these robots to become smarter over time, unlike myself, Mm. decreasing the need for human involvement within uh, picking and sorting products the picking and sorting uh, process. With the rise of e-commerce, this technology will become more important for fulfillment centers to implement into their processes in order to keep up with the customer demand. Sounds good. Here's what their co-founder and CEO, Eric Neves, has to say. He says, we're fortunate to work with customers at the leading edge of warehouse automation who share our values of robots work, people rule. Like our clients, our investors have a global footprint representing Asia and the EU, as well as North America. The potent combination sets plus one on a course to continue growing our internationally installed base. You think this is a this is a really interesting product, and this really caught my eye because it harkened back to so many of those conversations we've had with these yeah. ro- warehouse robotics companies of where the role of the human fits in, and they've even integrated into their marketing. Robots work, people rule. Yeah, they really did, and let's hope it stays that way, right? Like, not like iRobot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously but. that's sci-fi or whatever it is, but it, it 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 it's interesting to me because you remember. It costs twenty thousand dollars or twenty million dollars to have a robot uh, carry some uh, one gallon of milk. Yeah, right. Remember that quote. Okay. This kind of seems like it changes that. Yeah, and it will over time. Right. It will over time. Yeah. I mean, look. Here's the thing. 
if, if this AI stuff really advances, that you know, it's going to become Skynet. They're going to realize that human beings are the biggest threat. They're going to run every calculation scenario possible, yeah. and then they're going to annihilate us all. But in the meantime, let's have a good time. <laughs> all right, Matson CEO, Transpacific. <laughs> Here's you can have some good time if you're collecting on this. You're not having a good time if you're paying these rates. Light your hair. Matson CEO, Transpacific Trade to stay stronger for longer. Greg Riller <laughs> reports that in 2020, shipping executives predicted the container shipping squeeze would last until Chinese New Year in February 2021. That's right. So many predictions may not come yeah. true. Well, that didn't happen. They said, hey, how about mid-2021? <laughs> the bar is now moving further out to the fourth quarter or beyond. Translate, people are just saying stuff because they don't know. After <laughs> market close on Tuesday, Matson CEO Matt Cox said on a conference call with analysts, we expect demand in the trans-Pacific trade lane to remain favorable with elevated uh, consumption trends to continue beyond the second quarter. We expect significant demand for expedited CLX and CLX Plus services to remain throughout the peak season into late October. So no slowdown in mind, uh, just a sustained peak season all throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. Matson also expects significant congestion, particularly in and around the ports of California, as we already seen, we're still seeing right now, will most likely persist through second quarter into peak season. Cox entertained the possibility of import boom going even longer still, adding we are well prepared to meet customer needs if the congested environment we are currently in continues past the peak season which is in the fall. So cross this line. No, cross this line. No, yeah. cross this line. <laughs> right. Cox added, in my nearly 40 years in the business, I have not seen an environment like this with international trade lanes operating capacity and widespread supply chain congestion leading to pressure at U.S. ports, terminals, rail yards, and warehouses. Widespread supply chain congestion has created a very challenging business environment. He goes on to say, in many cases, we've seen other ocean carriers in the trans-Pacific trade, not having containers to fill their ships. We've talked about this. You were talking about on min- Midday Market Update yesterday about the empties and the repositioning and because of the, the yeah. trade imbalance, the absolute failure of the trade war in this environment, we are short containers. What that means is that ships are now blanking sailings, A, for either not having enough containers or B, just because of the delays and congestion, they're not making it to the port in time. Back in other times, ship, steamship lines would blank sailings because they didn't have enough freight. So this is really unique that they're blanking sailings because they have too much freight, but they don't have the boats there. Yeah, it was just last year this time that they were blanking sailings yeah. like crazy because yeah. there was no freight. Or they predicted there wasn't going to be any freight, right? Yeah. Well, there was none, and they predicted there would be none, so they were anchoring them all over the place. This is the type of blanking that and they don't boom. want to be doing, yeah. but they're still making money hand over fist. So it carries. If you look at the earnings, people are reaping in a lot of these rewards. Uh, we have our first guest here now, though. It's Omar Singh. He's the founder and president of Surge Transportation. Welcome back, Omar. Dude, you remember in a previous interview with Omar, he mentioned to us that he helped pay his way through college by driving a truck. Hey, guys. Hey. It's <laughs> nice to be back. Good to see you. Yeah, good How's to it going? You, you now have the boxing gloves behind you today. I don't have the boxing gloves. I'm actually down in South America uh, opening an office here in Colombia, and um, so I'm just in a different space today. Oh, beautiful. We've heard before people call Colombia the Silicon Valley of South America. True? I guess it is. What they say, they say down here, I'm in Medellin, and I mean, things are going well, so we're, we're ramping up a pretty big staff here, and there's a lot of talent in the city, so yeah, happy to be here. Well, I got to agree. And Medellin so. was one of Vinny Chase's best movies. Shout out to Entourage fans. Well, there recently you, you wrote an article on Put That Coffee Down. You, you were on Put That Coffee Down talking about an article. It caught, my, it caught my eye, and you were talking about these seven steps to partnerships with customers. And I think it's very important. We talked about how challenging this market is. But can you walk us through it a little bit? What are some of these steps? Yeah, so I came up with this. It was sort of two reasons I had to really kind of 
try to wrap my head around how I can be a valuable strategic partner, you know, to my customers or our customers. And, you know, there were two levels. It was personal and professional. So I think I mentioned to you guys before, I had a really hard fall in 2010. My trucking company went out of business. And in 2011, I was, I was trying to rebuild, but I was really struggling. So it's kind of like, you know, what, what's going wrong? But, you know, the trucking company was bankrupt. I was personally bankrupt. So my family fell apart. My career was bankrupt. And I was trying to kind of go in on the traditional trucking model and win primary business, but it wasn't really working. So it's, you know, kind of what's going, what's, what's going wrong? What am I doing wrong that I'm not diverse enough? I'm not specialized enough. I'm not strategic enough to where, you know, I, I just need to be able to recover. And what, you know, can I provide to prospective or current customers that's just a little bit more than what other people are doing? So I sort of try to identify every single possible thing you could do to generate income, but also be valuable. So I say it's kind of like both wide and deep, you know, so you got primary business, um, backup business, which is not, you know, the first choice, but second or third, and then seasonal business. All shippers are affected by seasonality of the industry, even if they don't have seasonal products. Um, and then temporary business, which I say are um, unexpected and expected. So you can have, and it's, it's shorter than like a, a seasonal, but it's like a, a, a hurricane or a tornado or a wildfires or rail congestion, polar vortex, things that you kind of know things are gonna happen, but you can't plan around them really. Um, and then you have expected things like holidays and um, sporting events or promotions of your product that you know are going at some point. Um, and then strategic spot, I've said, which is kind of the world of APIs and um, transactional spot, which is everyone's kind of spot auction and um, expedites. So in doing all of that, it's kind of, you know, you create opportunities for yourself throughout the year, but also become just a more valuable provider to your customers. I think it's, you know, it's worth talking about both the shippers and also the people who are trying to out there kind of hustle and develop business. Yeah, I think th I thought those were excellent. And reading through those seven, I thought they were perfect and spot on. And and when I got to seven, I had to laugh at, uh, at your description of it, uh, not because it was, uh, ridiculous but because it was so spot on and it just brought in you know the navy seal of shipments why is this fruit to corn syrup so important that i have to spend every waking second of my life to make sure that it happens right but do you feel that uh people they they fail at at getting that recovery i mean these seven steps you brought these out of necessity to bring back your business to get your professional career back online uh, do people fail to make it into these customers because they won't accept levels like They'll only go down to level two, but they won't go after three, four, five, six, or seven and, and try and make those connections to get to that top? Well, I think it's it's hard, right? It's obviously a lot of work. Expedites are always happening at night. They're not happening during the day. Maybe you get up early during the day to start all of your primary work and then working late at night. is It's hard on, you know, just a schedule to be able to do it. But I think it's also really difficult. And it took me a long time to learn how to go into these accounts and say, you know, where are the opportunities? Do you have expedites? What does your seasonality look like? Is it summer seasonality because you have beverages that surge during the summertime? Is it Q4 seasonality because it's retail? Um, so some of it is taking the time to really get to know the customers and their needs and the different buyers within the organizations. So, you know, people might might fail at that just because they're not exposed to saying, hey, I, I want to understand how to be you know, wide, not just deep on a couple of things. 
But yeah, it's also hard. I mean, expedites are, you know, they're challenging. Uh, it's challenging to source capacity. It's challenging to manage it. Um, and it's challenging to be diversified. But I think if you're not, that's, yeah, it is almost a failure. I mean, maybe not a failure, but it's, it's more challenging to be a strategic valuable partner to your customers if you're not doing a little bit more than kind of everybody else, run of the mill primary business. Now, are these seven steps, are they tiered? Are they weighed differently? Does, you know, is, is one the best with seven the worst? How do you look at it? Because I, I could see these being very applicable to sort of how salespeople would look at their book of business and how they're developing their pipeline. Well, I think it's, I think it depends on your business model, right? I mean, motor carriers really are uh, on a primary business model and maybe a, on a backup and maybe brokers are more of a backup temporary seasonal. Um, so I think it, it's what you're going after, but I have found that if you really are doing a good job on say temporary unexpected events where they suddenly need help expedites, then you'll kind of be given more opportunities where they say, okay, let's just kind of expand this relationship because I, I know you're going to be for me, uh, be here for me late at night, or I know you're going to be here for me when there's a storm. So maybe if your price is reasonable enough, we'll get you in on some more backup or communicate with you about what you need to do to have a little bit more primary and begin to kind of grow that relationship on, on all of these seven, I guess, pillars, if you call them. Yeah, so it's growing. It is growing the pipeline, getting in there and moving through those things. What have you found to be the hardest uh, part of implementing these steps within the clients? Well, we kind of just talked about it a second ago, but I think number one is getting noticed, right? Just at high level, getting noticed, getting an opportunity. Right now in the country, there are about twenty four thousand brokerages who all have lots of sales reps. So call it one hundred and fifty thousand reps going after this business. Uh, there's three hundred thousand motor carriers with you know, different terminals and reps. So getting noticed, making a case for an opportunity is certainly, you know, I think the very hardest, but then when you get in there, like I was saying, I, you know, larger organizations have many different buyers. So maybe brought you in for primary, isn't the person that is needing expedite handle, isn't the person who's needing promotions handle, isn't the person who's needing seasonality and, and you know, peak season handle different buyers. And that's, it's confusing and they're large, diverse, complicated organizations with diverse supply chains. And I think learning that is, is really hard and it takes a lot of time to get in and, and learn your customers' needs if you've been given the opportunity. Uh, so it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, I guess, even call it research, you know, to find out who's who and, and, and how to be valuable. Hey, Omar, congratulations on the new office over there in Medellin. I know you have a lot of work to do setting that up. So where should we tell people to go to if they want to check out more insights from you and also work with uh, Surge Transportation? So um, you just cut out for a second there. But yeah, if you want to know more about Surge Transportation and work with us, it's just info at Surge Transportation. It'll get routed to the right person. Um, love to hear from you know anybody for sure. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, guys. Good to see you again. Take it easy. All right, now we're going to be joined by Jennifer Miller. She's the Senior Director of Operations at DHL Supply Chain. She's a University of Michigan graduate, and she also spent time at Kellogg's before joining DHL Supply Chain. Awesome. Jennifer, hello. Welcome to the show, and introduce yourself. Thanks for having me, Timothy and Michael. Um, glad to be here. Uh, I really have worked here at DHL for 20 years, and uh, I'm focused in our transportation uh, operations here and, and what we do every day to support all of our transportation fleets. 
Excellent stuff. Thank you uh, for being here, Jennifer. Um, so we just came off of uh, Earth Day last week. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, DHL supply chain sustainability programs? Yeah, here at DHL, we really focus on three pillars of uh, sustainability. We focus on environmental, social, and governance, governance aspects of this. Um, within our Go Green program, uh, it's really about property, warehousing, transport, which we're talking about today, and packaging solutions. All of these together really come together to create a, a total uh, environmental package. When we talk about transport, we really want to focus on how do we burn less and how do we burn clean? Uh, because that's really what our customers care about. It, you know, climate change emissions is the bulk of our environmental impact. So that's what we focus on from fuel and energy. And as a company, we've got a really ambitious target. Um, we want to have zero emissions by 2015, or sorry, 2050. Um, and we are taking steps every day to push toward that. And we've, you know, recently announced some pretty ambitious interim goals to try and get there. So it's, it's a big focus for us every day. You mentioned customers. So how are you putting these efforts into practice and what are those customers saying about them? Yeah, our customers really are starting to ask about sustainability solutions. Uh, we're getting that question a lot from our customers. You know, they want to see warehouses with a lower energy footprint and they want to see transportation with lower climate emissions um, and lower impacts to the environment. They care on the warehousing side, do I have sustainable lighting? Do I have zero fill, you know, landfill? On the transport side, um, they want to see what we're doing about burning the energy. So it's, it's, you know, a conversation we're having more and more with our customers. A huge piece of this for us is digitalization uh, because without the data, without the information, um, you know, you really have a hard time putting these solutions forward to the customer. So really our internal digitalization programs are helping to advance these, these you know, goals for us, including how do we optimize processes, how do we reduce the energy, and how do we enabling the application of all this data we're now collecting uh, to solve problems, and, and certainly most recently problems that we haven't seen in the supply chain uh, before. So we're taking solutions like robotic process automation and, and simple things that you might go, wow, why haven't we done that before, like electronic bills of lading, uh, to say there are multiple ways to, to create these sustainable solutions, and we can use both the digital data to do this, as well as electronic platforms, like with the electronic bills of lading, uh, to, to get, you know, provide those solutions for the customer. We're also focusing, though, on the flip side, on true innovation. Um, we've pre-ordered 10 Tesla electric heavy-duty Class 8 trucks uh, that we plan to deploy in the U.S. market. And we also have um, a solution. It's a solar film solution for our tractors and trailers um, that allows us to power the lift gates uh, through this solution exclusively and then can improve our uh, fuel efficiency in our tractors by up to 5%. So these innovations um, are, you know, in that technology space, but looking a little differently. So 
both how do we take the digitalization and the data that we have and use it, and then how do we bring in innovation uh, to our solutions so that we can um, you know, continue to bring new solutions to our customer. The last piece here, which is really important, is not forgetting, you know, we have all this, this innovation and, and kind of fancy items that our customers love, but we can't forget about managing our core business every day. We have a program where we have performance dialogues with our customer and we focus on the tactical items that are so important. Um, how much are our trucks idling? How much you know, fuel are we burning that our customers care about and the climate cares about? And then how do we control the speed in our trucks? Uh, the speed in our trucks you know, does a lot for how our sustainability goals, and it's both cost and sustainability. So it's really something that we focus on this tactical level day to day. Excellent, Jennifer. Really improve uh, impressive technologies that you guys are going there. I love the 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 uh, the solar film for the lift gates as well. But uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Pun intended. I think we're both curious here to kind of have a conversation. See how these conversations tie in with dedicated fleets. You know, there's this misconception out there that dedicated fleets can lead to empty miles and inefficiencies. Can you set some some light on this aspect? Yeah. And, you know, that's been, I think, um, certainly a concern um, and, and, you know, a misconception for a long time. Um, really, we look to minimize these efficiencies and, you know, start to have a theme here through having the right software, having the right technology. And we really uh, recommend a best of breed approach in making sure that you're looking at how you're executing, you know, routing your trucks, executing your trucks, and really front to back, do you have that digital platform to monitor what you're doing? Within that, empty miles is something we hear a lot from customers. You know, will the dedicated fleet have a lot of empty miles? Am I, am I paying for wasted miles? Um, and really, uh, we focus on that through some proprietary software that we pair with our fleet management software. And, and to be clear, Empty miles are both an art and a science. Uh, the science is pairing where I have capacity and where I could pair a load with it. Um, but the art is saying, looking at all the details and saying, does this work? Can I do it? Uh, are these compatible loads? And, and really closing the gap to say, yeah, I can do this and let's execute on that. So we, we really uh, focus on this and it can provide a large value to our customers uh, imagine if you can reduce your empty miles by 25 to 50%, uh, that's a pretty large impact, both in cost and the environment. Uh, so I think that misconception is something um, that we can certainly answer, answer the question for and bring forward those solutions. Jennifer, thank you so much. Very insightful. How do people learn more? Yeah, um, we have a couple ways. You can go to DHL Supply Chain's All Business No Boundaries podcast, which you can find anywhere you go to get your podcasts. Um, and it has several topics from CSR to transportation innovation and uh, our sustainability mindset. But you can also go over to DHL.com slash All Business No Boundaries, and you can learn there about how we're integrating sustainability into our operations uh, in all parts of the supply chain. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. My thank you, guys. Thank you. Michael thank you, Vincent. Jennifer. 
Speaking of reducing your carbon footprint, oh, yeah, right? Absolutely. She segued you perfectly right she here. She certainly did. Hey, you showed know. them that t-shirt, uh, oh, man. Look, look, you know where you get one of these t-shirts? Look at this. Freightwaves Carbon Intelligence. Mm -hmm. So Freightwaves Carbon Intelligence is a new tool in Sonar. Yeah. It's linked with the supply chain intelligence. You can benchmark, analyze, forecast, even get suggestions on how to, how to reduce your carbon footprint with all your loads. You go to carbon.freightwaves.com. Yeah. You get yourself one of these cool t-shirts and you get yourself a demo of this new tool and reduce your carbon footprint. Do it. Do it right after the show. Yeah. Do, Why do, wouldn't you do it, man? I don't know. Reduce your carbon footprint. There you go. Dooner, get out and go right do it within right sonar. Yeah, you know, I I can reduce my carbon footprint by going to Mars. Uh, oh, and, yeah. But first, we're going to be talking about something that's really cool here. It's this X fifty nine. And Michael Vince, you might remember the Concorde, right? I do. Now, I believe they stopped flying that in like two thousand three. But supersonic jet, you could fly from New York to London in fifty two minutes on this thing. But I believe it was kind of loud. Right? It was fast, it was expensive, yeah. cost prohibitive. Well, they haven't stopped work on supersonic jets now, and one of the ones that they're working on is the X-59. So Craig Nickel from NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center, Low Bloom Flight Demonstrator Project Manager, he's in charge of building this <laughs> X-59. He's going to talk to us now about it. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, oh, you yeah, sound great, absolutely. man. How are the coolest All titles? Right. Yeah, you have you have a really cool title. What what do people say when you tell them that one at the party? <laughs> I don't really tell them that one because it gets them. Uh, it's too complicated. I just tell them I work on you know building a cool airplane, basically. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about this airplane. Um, you know, supersonic jets haven't been in the news a ton, but I was looking into this and it looks really awesome. Yeah, it is a really cool project. Uh, the idea here is. You mentioned the Concorde, and certainly the Concorde was a super cool airplane. Unfortunately, the only place you can see one now is in a museum. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, you know, it was pretty costly to operate. It was um, pretty loud. And as a matter of fact, because of the sonic booms that come off of aircraft when they go supersonic, uh, it was banned of flying supersonic over land. And so essentially what we have right now is a speed limit on how fast we can fly commercial transport aircraft over land cannot fly faster than Mach 1 or the speed of sound. And uh, the whole idea of X-59 is to get the rules changed. We would like to change the speed limit into a noise limit. Um, wouldn't it be nice if the rule said, you can fly as fast as you want over land as long as you don't make more than X amount of noise. Mm. And so the purpose of X-59 is to actually figure out what that X is. You know, what would be an acceptable level of boom noise? And uh, we've done a lot of research. Uh, NASA's done research, uh, different Folks out in industry have done research, and we, we feel like we have a pretty good handle of what that level, you know, what level would be acceptable to the public. Uh, but, but we can't really get the rules changed until we actually get data. So X-59 is all about flying the aircraft in the, in the real world and having the public, you know, get public response data on what they perceive in terms of this airplane flying overhead at certain speeds and generating certain levels of sonic boom. And uh, we're pretty confident when we do this experiment that uh, we'll be able to get the data and we take that to the regulators and then we essentially get that rule change so we don't have a speed limit anymore. It's absolutely fascinating. I was reading about that, you know, getting the uh, people's, uh, the public or the, yeah, the public's opinion or yeah. perception of it. And they were paying, I think it was like $25 a week or something like that to to report what you heard as it flies over or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. That they were, uh, I, it was one of the, in one of the blurbs. I don't think you guys were doing that quite yet. The, but it's super fast. You're trying to get it real quiet, yeah. right? So I, I get mm -hmm. it for speed and travel, for getting across the country really quick. What other purposes would something like this serve? Why are you developing this? Why is it so important to NASA? 
Well, like you said, um, there's throughout the history of transportation, you know, folks have wanted to go faster because it's you know more efficient. Sometimes it's you know speed, time is money, right? So the faster you go, you're saving money, and uh, you, you know it's just basically a push to go faster. So there's a lot of um, desire in the market to to go fast. Uh, at the same time, you want to be efficient, you want to be environmentally friendly, and certainly there's technologies that can help us do that as well. Uh, but essentially, the way we look at it is right now, the way the rules are, they're blocking all of that innovation uh, industry, you know, is blocked from selling products like this. Uh, but we think and I think there's several industry folks as well that see a potential market here and uh, it could really revitalize and add jobs essentially and, and build a whole new market of supersonic commercial transports, kind of like what Concord was attempting to do. Uh, but now we're, you know, a generation later in technology. And um, if we can get the low boom problem solved, like X-59 is attacking, then I think it really could open up these new markets. So low boom, I was going to ask you about that. Is that that sonic boom? Is that what that that means? And that's what you're trying to eliminate and, and mitigate? I read somewhere like you're trying to get this down to about 70 decibels. Yes, it's a, it's called a PLDB for a perceived level of decibels, kind of what you hear. And uh, that levels around 75 uh, perceived level decibels, which is roughly equivalent to maybe a very distant thunder on the horizon that you may or may not hear. Or maybe your neighbor just shuts their car door in the driveway next door and you maybe hear it or maybe you ignore it. Something that really would not startle you. You may not even notice it. Uh, that's the level. Um, Concord's level was over 100. And on a decibel scale, scale that's you know, a lot bigger, mm -hmm. basically. So we're talking about getting down to 75, which would be fairly low. And uh, through all the ground research and simulations we've done with folks, um, we feel like that level would be acceptable. But again, like I said, we don't know for sure until we go fly and get real public response data and uh, gather all that data. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't know until you fly the thing, right? So yeah. let's talk about that. What are the mm -hmm. challenges? How do you develop something like this? Uh, we read somewhere that, you know, one-tenth scale models, et cetera. How do you develop this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, it's been a pretty intensive uh, effort at uh, NASA, at different universities around the country, and even different um, industry partners. And basically, for the past several decades, you know, I'd say 20 years, we've been doing research on low-boom design. And one of the challenges is just the complex mathematics and computations it takes to design an aircraft that's actually controllable in flight and um, base and has a low boom at the same time. And so the um, you know the computer age you know when we got our computational codes with our computer technology, the ability to do this computational fluid dynamics analysis on very very fast um, supercomputers has been a real enabler for this design. Uh, because, again, there's a lot of variables you're dealing with here. Uh, not only do you have to have the aircraft, you know, you have to have a regular aircraft, which is complicated enough, but then you've got to have a low boom design as well. And it all has to work at the same time. And so uh, over time, we've been able to solve those problems. Uh, we've done some testing, like you mentioned, some small scale testing in wind tunnels with models. We've done some flight testing. Uh, there was something called a shaped sonic boom demonstrator project called SSBD in around 2003. And that's the first time that we really proved that we could change the shape of an airplane and then affect the boom on the ground as it propagates down from the plane all the way to the ground in a predictable way. Uh, so that was the first time we really exercised our computer codes to predict what a shape, a shape change would do to the boom. 
And then we took an F-5 aircraft and we flew it with no changes and measured the boom. And then we changed the shape of the nose and made it a very fat nose and flew it again and measured that boom. And we, we compared the changes to our computer code predictions and we nailed it right on. And at that point in time, everybody said, wow, we can do this. We can actually design a low boom plane now with, with this capability. Uh, turns out the nose part is the easy part. And it gets very difficult when you get to the tail of the aircraft, the back end, because you've got a lot of control surfaces and tails and engines, nozzles, plumes, lots of things going on with shockwaves back there. So it took us another 10 or 15 years of working to get that back end designed correctly. And X-59, when you look at the picture, it represents literally decades of a lot of work to get that design to the point we think it's going to actually be a low boom design. Now, let me ask you something. So... When people see these things, right, it's a unique looking thing. They might yeah. they might call in reports of UFOs. Do you guys at NASA sit there like <laughs> laughing like, ha, it was just the X-59 up in the air again? Well, yeah, I mean, again, we're, we do want to basically work with the public. The public is very important in this experiment. And I think they're going to be excited about being able to participate in an experiment with NASA that could maybe change, you know, how how their lives go with travel. And so we definitely want to make sure they understand it's not a UFO because, you know, with the UFOs, people sometimes freak out and then hear about the aliens coming and everything. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't want that to happen. So we're, we, what we're going to do is we're going to have a lot of community uh, interactions and communications and sort of preset everybody so that nobody's surprised when we show up. And that's the plan. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, can you imagine? Hey, Joe, I see you made the papers again with your with your aircraft. Well, I, 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 well, I have a, a follow up question. I mean, yeah. NASA is such a curious thing. You, you mentioned the public so much, and NASA does a great job of inspiring inspiring the public. So, how does someone like you end up with the job that you're in? Did you always want to be in NASA and make supersonic jets? Well, I always was interested in airplanes. When I was a little kid, my uncle was a uh, Air Force pilot. And he flew the A7 Corsair, and I went to air shows and saw him fly into air shows. And I was about 10 or 12, and that just blew me away. So I thought that was the coolest thing in the world to be a fighter pilot. And so I just started out getting interested in airplanes, wanted to be a pilot. Uh, But then uh, my, you know, you need really good eyesight for that at the time. So I didn't really get through the pilot training very well with my eyes. So then I thought, well, the next best thing is design airplanes and work with pilots and engineers and help build and design new airplanes. So that's how I got into more of the aerospace engineering side. And uh, then that just led to a job at NASA. And I was working in a lot of conceptual design, which is a lot of uh, computer and paper designs. And then eventually, sometimes the conceptual design gets picked to become a real airplane, which is pretty cool. And I just happened to get be lucky in the right place at the right time to go see this thing become a real airplane. Wow. It's very cool. So, Craig, we talk about autonomous vehicles here in, in, in transportation logistics all the time. You think, does autonomous uh, vehicles, drone, I guess, technology, whatever, you think that mm-hmm. threatens the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the experimental aircraft pilot that Dooner wants to be when he grows up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So I would say I wouldn't use the word threaten. I would say it could be an aid to that pilot. Yeah. I mean, certainly with, test, with testing brand new airplanes, you want to minimize the number of variables you're dealing with, right? And so if you've got a brand new airplane design and you're going to do an autonomous approach to it, you know, that's another level of complexity. So sometimes having a human test pilot is actually less complex uh, because a human, you know, has certain capabilities that are very difficult to replicate in a computer system. 
So I don't think uh, human test pilots necessarily need to feel be feel you know feel threatened by drones or, or autonomous technology. In some cases, it can be helpful because there's uh, basically cockpit aids and other things they can do to make their job easier and safer. Um, but certainly, you're right. Uh, the drone technology is pretty exciting. NASA is doing a lot of work with uh, this uh, uncrewed air vehicles and drone technology. And I think you know in the future there's going to be more and more of that happening. Um, I think it might start out in ground transportation first. You know, you talk about trucks. You know, why yeah. isn't that a great application? Why not have, you know, trucks go autonomous eventually, and they just drive, you know, fifty-five miles an hour in the right lane, straight and true, and and you don't have to pay drivers. So that I would say, if I was a truck driver, I might feel more threatened. Eventually, that could get to the airplanes, and I think we'll go to maybe. You know, right now there's usually a pilot and a co-pilot. There's two folks on the flight deck. I think we'll go to one eventually. We'll have a virtual one on the ground that might monitor many airplanes and have one person in the cockpit. And if people get comfortable with that, eventually freight, you know, freight aircraft, cargo aircraft may go to zero pilots. Uh, but in terms of a test pilot, I think they'd be the last <laughs> ones to leave the cockpit. Well, Craig, thank you so much for your time today and for, for letting us in this role, the X-59. It sounds exciting. Next time I hear distant thunder, I'm going to look up and and see if I see the supersonic jet flying by. We, we appreciate it. Now we got to go talk about ingenuity. So we're going to go take a trip over to Mars, and we'll let you get back to what you're doing. But thank you once again. Okay, you're welcome. Take, take it care. easy. Thanks, Craig. So now we're going to talk to Joshua Ravitch. He's NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory yeah. Mechanical Engineer Lead. Uh, you folks all saw it, right? The Mars Ingenuity Helicopter. Uh, it was the first, what, unmanned flight on the Red Planet, of course. Josh, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations for your team doing this historic Wright Brothers moment. As I understand, this helicopter even had a uh, shard or a piece of cloth from the 1903 Wright Brothers aircraft on the helicopter itself, correct? Yes. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to be here. Uh, and yeah, I did. We had a, a small, it's pretty small, about half inch square piece of fabric from, uh, yeah, from the actual Wright Flyer. Uh, we wrapped it up, put it underneath the solar array. Kind of hard to see. You know, we don't have a real close up of it on the surface. Uh, of course, we do from Earth. Yeah, really happy to include that. You know, kind of a commemoration of the achievements of the Wright brothers. Uh, I like to, to think about it. It's really the only piece of material ever that's been involved in the first flight on two different planets. Wow. Uh, might only be for for you know for all of history so well yeah we'll see um yeah that's impressive stuff joshua it's very cool watching the different films of it going on there and having that on there and saying it's the first and probably the only piece that will on two different planets the first flight right oh, yeah is 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 pretty amazing but that's not the only reason you guys are flying a helicopter up there right you're you're trying to dominate the drone racing league on mars aren't you you're just getting ahead of the <laughs> ahead of the game right <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. No, the question is why. So why fly it? What what what's going on here? Why are we flying this helicopter around Mars? Uh, yeah. I mean, besides, you know, just humans are curious. We like to do new things. We like to try new things. Like to get to new places. Uh, you know, besides that, it, it really just opens up a lot of uh, you know opportunities on Mars or any other atmospheric body. Uh, Titan, uh, Moon of Saturn has atmosphere. Venus has atmosphere. So it, re it really opens up that third dimension. You know, we've got satellites flying. You know, way up, uh, way up high, can take some pictures of the ground. We've got rovers. You know, driving around and landers on the ground. But we really don't have anything that can get up to, you know, 5, 10, 20 meters, you know, like 30 feet height, et cetera, you know, fly around the surface. So that opens up a lot of options, uh, exploration. There's places you can't go with a rover, uh, you know, over, you know, if the ditch is in front of you is too big, if there's a mountain in front of you, you can't really, 
you know, you can't drive down into a canyon, uh, but you can fly a helicopter there pretty easily, you know, down into a canyon, look at a cliff wall, uh, go, you know, just across really rocky terrain. Uh, a lot, a lot of benefits scouting ahead, uh, for future rovers, future astronauts, hopefully, um, as well, you know, doing remote science in hard to reach places, mapping an entire region, send the fleet of them all directions, uh, as well, even, you know, one of my favorite little goofy applications, you know, say you're an astronaut, you forget your wrench back home, you're going to go walk all the way back at, to your Mars base, right? Send, send the drone, send the helicopter, go pick <laughs> it up. <laughs> Amazon prime delivery, you know, that one hour, one day delivery, you got your own helicopter. But uh, what some people may not realize, and I was reading about this and I was really fascinated is I believe the gravity is like one, one hundredth, right. Of, of earth on Mars. So this would be like the equivalent of flying a helicopter at 27,000 miles up in the sky. Oh, so it's uh, it's actually uh, the gravity is one third, but atmospheric pressure is one one hundredth. So, yeah, it's about yeah, it's about 100,000 feet uh, in the air on Earth would be the equivalent pressure there. So, yeah, three times the height of Mount Everest, uh, a lot higher than, you know, commercial jets fly. So, uh, you know, definitely higher than any helicopters on Earth fly right now. So really, uh, yeah, really difficult to fly in that, you know, thin atmosphere. It, you know, really has a very tight, you know, tight margin of, of, you know, what works and what doesn't work there. Yeah. And besides that, there's the logistics of getting it there, right? You guys deal with a lot of specialized cargo and, and very, very sensitive instruments. And, and obviously this is one of them. What went into getting this thing, ingenuity? I mean, transporting it on Earth and developing it on Earth, but also getting it there all the way to Mars. What, what, what were some of the challenges there? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a yeah a challenge the entire time, right? It's not it's not only flying, like you said, not only flying a helicopter on Mars, but flying a helicopter on a rocket to another planet in the first place was a huge challenge. So stowing that on the rover on Perseverance safely, supporting the blades properly, supporting the you know the entire vehicle, make sure it doesn't fall apart, you know, folding up the legs so they can you know so they don't stick out too much while you're you know while you're flying there really difficult even yeah on earth handling it it's such a you know kind of a <laughs> really lightweight really you know weird fragile vehicle in its own way so transporting it safely around earth uh, it went to a lot of places it wasn't just you know in pasadena where we are moved to uh, moved to colorado moved to florida yeah handling that across the country um through all its various tests uh you know what was a real trick um you know we had to really take a lot of the time up front designing in you know how we're going to hold this thing throughout its you know its, its in- adventures you know i just moved down the street here in chattanooga and during lockdown my kid built a ton of legos right he built these these big yeah. elaborate lego sets and yeah. i i couldn't even get to my new place without half of them like falling apart you know and it's <laughs> like about delicate sensitive <laughs> stuff now you're talking about this helicopter so how excited like what was the reaction by the team when you finally saw this thing uh flying i think we showed the video just a little bit earlier maybe we could run it again of that 30 second liftoff and uh and touchdown you guys had to go crazy right Oh, yeah. It, it felt great. I mean, a lot of us have been on the project for five years, uh, some even longer, you know, over a decade. And, you know, every day, uh, one, one of my buddies on the project remarked when we were done, you know, handling it that, well, you know, it's nice. I can come into work today not worrying about, you know, breaking and destroying my entire mission because um, just uh, it's kind of fragile to work around and just you're so you know so stressed out when you're near it of just like let's you know be be aware of where your, every body part is uh, where you know how you move around it so uh yeah knowing we you know we built something that survived all its testing survived all its uh you know travel to another planet and worked i mean uh, yeah it just it feels really great 
Is there a certain type of NASA person? Because your team, we've been talking to NASA month over month, and everyone at NASA is just like, they're so relaxed, they're so curious, they seem to really love their job and what they're doing, but you're, you're dealing with things that could, could not work, they could cost a lot of money. Yeah. It seems like a super high stressful situation you're in, but you guys don't come across that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we just kind of like doing our doing our jobs, you know, building hardware. So we try not to think about it too much. <laughs> they seem like really yeah, yeah. smart kids that are just like, yeah, we'll build another one. Yeah, yeah, maybe it <laughs> But it, so who was who had the joystick controlling this this thing? Just just kidding. <laughs> how how do you control uh, the flight? How do you plan those flights? Right? I mean, you can't be sitting there with a joystick, right? Oh, no. Yeah. Besides the signal delay, you know, it's whatever it is, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes uh, signal delay to Mars. Uh, we actually found out very early in the project, probably about it's about seven years now when they they built this tiny little test piece, it's about eight, maybe eight inch cube um, little helicopter to fly in, in uh, Mars pressure for the first time. And they did have a drone pilot, a very experienced you know, pilot. Uh, try to joystick it uh it does not work the way you think it does you, know, you try to go this way thing flies that way uh, with the low pressure uh it really doesn't work like a normal helicopter on on earth would <laughs> so yeah uh, we learned very quickly that you need a computer to uh to fly it yeah not to say there won't be like a you know some awesome pilot in the future who figures out how to do it manually but yeah right now uh, right now computer is the way to do it well, so it's delivering the wrench uh, eventually, but this first flight, 30 seconds, are you, are you going to keep extending that, that time frame for flying? And how does that work? I imagine you have to sequence it, right? And you don't want it to just crash and break, so you don't want it to go up for, like, for, for hours. So how do you stress test these things now that it's on Mars? Yeah, so uh, we've uh, done actually a few flights since that first 30-second flight. We've mm-hmm. done two more flights, and uh, every time we do a little bit more. So the second flight went a little bit higher, um, moved out about you know 15 feet or so, came back. Uh, third flight, we actually went out uh, about 150 feet, like I think 50 meters, uh, and then came back. And uh, we're prepping for, we have two more flights on the books. And yeah, we're as we go forward, we're trying to push the limits, uh, you know, of the, the time we fly, you know, 30 seconds was the first time you know i think we're up to about a minute uh we might go a little bit longer than that try to go a little higher try to go a little further down range and just yeah see what we can do so it's really just kind of progressively testing it you know well we did this we think it works let's try something a little tougher and push the limits yeah so you uh i i I read that it uh 4.5 miles per hour was the speed on on the last one right so you're pushing those limits so is the intention just keep pushing 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 until it breaks just see how far can we go in uh, well, increments to try and gather as much data? I mean, you don't want to try and do, you know, 300 miles right off the bat because then, boom, you crash yeah. and you don't know if it can do 100, right? Yeah, so um, hopefully we won't break it. Uh, we have two more flights that are, you know, that's in our mission. We're always up to, you know, five flights max was a, kind of a, the, the limit okay. uh, before Perseverance has to go on to its, you know, its main mission. Um, so, yeah, we'll try to do something. You know, hopefully the, the next two flights will do something, you know, pretty cool. Uh, they're still kind of discussing what they want to do. We've actually met our primary, you know, engineering data goals with the first three, right? You know, the test flights, uh, you know, were set up to bring back all the data we want for future helicopters. Now these are really, you know, a little more open-ended of, you know, push the boundaries. So yeah. I, my Can hope I is we'll land. Can I suggest a loop <laughs> Can I suggest oh, a yeah, loop-de-loop? You, know, <laughs> you know, you're not the first person to, to suggest that. Uh, my dad actually <laughs> suggested that, too. I think it would be cool. I don't think they're going to try it, but yeah, we can hope. <laughs> well, Josh, uh, the dude and I are always looking for new content to watch, and, and so is the audience. So uh, before we let you go, what, what do you, in your opinion, what is the best space movie or TV show? 
Oh gosh, uh, that's a really tough one. Uh, <laughs> always a Star Wars fan, like yeah. Dune, like Farscape, uh, Stargate. You know, you name it. Actually, I think all of us are pretty, uh, pretty nerdy. Uh, you know, on, on lab, so it's it's hard to choose. <laughs> nice. A lot of you guys have told me ex- the Expanse before. They they keep recommending that. It's on my mm-hmm. you know, on Prime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, hey, I mean, thank you for breaking the laws of physics and, and doing all this wonderful stuff, you and the NASA team. It, it's so cool from here to hear from you. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. We Thanks, appreciate Josh. it. Wow. Man. Yeah, very cool stuff. They are like, very they cool. are the, the loosest, most relaxed, coolest. I know, cool. they like, are. they love their jobs. I think I it's so fun. It's awesome. All it right, really man, let's, let's awesome. talk about what was inside the newsletter. Inside the newsletter. There it is. You've got mail. All right, so th- this wasn't in the newsletter, but this what? should this what? should have been in the newsletter. I didn't read about it until today. Oh. Um, CNN is reporting, right, that a man okay. was arrested in J- at JFK because he had 35 birds, singing birds inside of his, in his clothing. He was wearing this coat with all these different birds. And I think we have a picture of the container that they look at that. They, so they put these singing <laughs> birds in here. And I guess what? this isn't in, in the past two weeks, three different people have been arrested trying to smuggle these birds in. And I, I'm, I'm learning about this whole entire world of bird singing competitions that go on apparently in Central Park, where people will bet thousands of dollars on which bird, I guess one bird goes against another bird and they sing. And then the winner um and then once the bird wins there people will buy that for up to uh ten thousand so dollars michael vincent what is is this an international competition that goes I guess, well, on so is this that guy, why they're smuggling them in well, you what? remember like locked up abroad yeah so this guy he says that he was you know he's from guyana his name was uh kevin oh. mckenzie's a 36 year old and he says that he was given um 500 he was given give, give, they were going to give him three thousand dollars they gave him okay. five hundred dollars okay. to get on the airplane yeah with these birds to bring them over to jfk and i, yeah. I guess then you, I don't know where you do. What you, you do, I guess, somebody, to, I guess. I guess so. You go to the park and they start singing. In the winter, you get ten thousand dollars and you bring it back. I'm, I guess. So but <laughs> he got clipped. So they, they, he, uh, so he had to pay three hundred dollars and they, they sent him on a flight back home. But I guess that's when the real trouble is going to start because whatever king, if that story is true, whatever bird singing kingpin set him up, he's going to be a big joke. Jo- imagine like how ridiculous that the is. The bird cartel in Guyana. Yeah, imagine if, like the cartel him. had you like tied to a tree and was like putting uh, some tires over you, pouring gas. <laughs> So you know, and you're like, this is how my life ends because yeah. I tried to smuggle birds into a thirty-five singing competition. birds, and they wouldn't stop singing while I was trying. How to How do you? JFK. Why would you bring singing? Don't they sing? Doesn't that obviously I, I like that's like an alarm? I don't know. I mean, how nervous are you on that flight from Guyana? Going just, just, just don't keep, keep it quiet. Yeah, I'll give you some seed when we land. Yeah, I mean, how nervous are you that you might start whistling and inspire somebody to start singing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, if you guys That's want the What the Truck newsletter, you can get it. It comes out every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Go to FreightWaves.com slash WTT. Some of the things we did cover in there, we'll touch on briefly here. One yeah. of them was the market. And now all April, I mean, this is still a big mountain we're talking about. So let me preface yeah, this yeah, yeah, by, like, yeah. if you look at the chart in Sonar, there's a little stuff that goes down. Then the ski hill goes way, way up. Yes. And then it kind of plateaus for a little bit. And But for all of April, it's been going down about four or five cents a yeah. week. Yeah. It's down to 304 now. I believe we peaked at 332. Um, a month or so ago. We're at 304. Compared to a year ago, not a great comparison, but compared to a year ago, rates are up 80% higher than they were. Now, last year was a terrible time to compare with, but it does show just how incredible, how the, the stretch, right, that can happen in this market. What do you see in the market right now? 
Yeah, well, I mean, like like you said, you know, September September nineteenth, uh, I think, or thirteenth was was the first peak after it started coming up, right? Yeah, it hit like three or two ninety nine is what it hit right there, and then it started coming back down, and then it kept going. It's at three hundred four, so it's really still five cents above the average since the very first peak back in September. Yeah, so, so it slid down, but like you said, it's still very very high, and and and. You, you still have incredible amounts of, of, of tightness in that market and volumes that are coming through there. I, I you know, it, it's leveled out at really, really high. And, and like we saw with the with the Suez being Suez and, and Texas, small little energy or disruptions uh, in the supply chain are going to have dramatic effects on, on supply chain, uh, you know, disruption as far as the as far as the pricing and the capacity is concerned. And we still see those imports are still way, way up. Yeah. Right. Housing is still doing really well. The industrials, mm. as we talked to Anthony Smith, our well, that economists are still too. very strong, too. Mm. Right. Yeah, so. well, when you look at it, too, I mean, the, the fundamentals that are there in the market speak to what you're saying. Volumes have remained the yeah. same. Rejections are still at one uh, one out of every four loads is being rejected by carriers. Uh, that speaks to the lack of capacity in the market. That's not yeah. going to be filled anytime soon. So no. it, it looks like the market is just trying to find the floor and the ceiling and where it's going to stay. And it's going to be right. hard. I don't think this is going to fall down to like $2 or below. Yeah. We might get to 250 but I think you're going to stay between 250 and 320 depending on what happens in the environment and and what happens in these situations and, and what else could go wrong, right? Yeah, it's fine to f- trying to find its norm to which it's going to react to other things right now. Listen to me, the Madison CEO is. doesn't know what's going on. He's like, yeah, it's going to go to the end of the year. So well, should, like should we you said, they keep saying, well, th- this line, then it's going to stop. Well, no, and then maybe this line, maybe that. Yeah. Well, and yeah. earnings are coming in too. Carriers are making money hand over fist. Covenant yeah. just down the street. The brokerage, they just had their best um, quarter ever. C.H. Robinson making money hand over fist. Uh, a lot of companies doing good. There were a couple bankruptcies, but that just seemed like the companies were... We're done wrong. The other thing, you mentioned it right there, housing. So yeah. housing starts are at a 15-year high. Last yeah. month, they're at a 15-year high. Right. What's happening, though, so you know we talked about microchips? Yeah, we right? did. And the decisions made at the beginning of the pandemic that people are going to buy less cars, they're going to buy less TVs, they're going to buy less stuff, um, was a terrible bet by the microchip industry. Yes. The lumber industry made the same terrible bet. The mills stopped producing when they saw 20 million people unemployed. They said, there's no way people are going to be buying houses and doing home improvement projects. Uh, well, they're unemployed and they're locked down. Well, that proved to be completely wrong because there's, well, for one thing, there's yep. a lot of inequity in this, this country. It's only getting worse as these housing rates go up. And if you look at housing rates, they keep, and they're going to go up even more because of the cost of lumber. Now, if you've gone into a store, you've seen it, right? This is hitting oh, the yeah. consumer. No, the builders aren't eating this margin. The home sellers aren't eating this margin. You are. And there was a quote from a guy in here. He said that the homes that were 275 uh, a few months ago, they are 300 now. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. So 20, yeah, you're paying $25,000 are... premium. Yeah. I mean, not just on lumber. It's a hot market. But what they didn't account for was the fact that remote work, people needed offices in their house, or they just need a bigger space. I was in an apartment for a year, Michael Vincent. I was mm-hmm. like, I got to get the hell out of this thing. I got a house. Um, the other thing was you can't take your kids to parks. I have little kids. You have little kids. So people are like, I need a swing set. I need an outdoor office. I need a gazebo. I'm going to make the quality of life at home the best that I can. But that's reared its ugly, ugly head now in pricing. And it's going to take a while for these mills to catch up. And Mike, do you, so tell me, if, do you see... You know that bullwhip effect we were talking about with the toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah. Do you think that we're in for a big, at some point, once the whip finally cracks, do you think we're in for a big collapse? Because there's going to be so many dishwashers, so much TV, so much lumber, so many of all of these things are going to pile up that the freight won't need to move as much anymore. People won't be buying these, and, and we, see, we see a big decline. 
I don't think it'll be a big crash. I think yeah. we'll see a decline and it'll start stabilizing. I think it'll come down slower and slower as we see it. I think that people are smart enough to look at this right now and see that the spending habits are going to change yeah. as we start seeing the lockdowns and people get more, you know, come out of and start spending things on service and entertainment rather than goods. Hey, so get that one-struck newsletter. Go to FreightWaves.com slash WTT. It's free every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Drone Waves, join us. Speaking of free, live.freightwaves.com. Register for Drone Waves. It's this Friday. You saw that Mars helicopter. I believe I'm actually doing the keynote at uh, at Drone Waves with uh, Paramel Decker, or as I call him, PK, when we are on. On there talking about NASA's involvement with drones. We've got a ton of great guests at that event. We'll be doing a live What the Truck from there along with that keynote, a bunch of fireside tests, all that stuff. Live.freightwaves.com to register. We'll see you there. Then when you're there, get a ticket for F3. Use promo code WTT. Save yourself $200. We'll see you on Friday. Tell them what's up, Michael. He said love, everybody. Peace and love.